You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through conversations with the four recipients of the 2023 Locke Innovative Leader Award. These spiritual entrepreneurs exemplify the award's aim to honor innovative leaders who have taken risks to bring about a better world where more people know God's love. Visit our new YouTube channel to watch and comment on the video. For more information, go to wesleyanimpactpartners.org. Hi, friends. Welcome to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my co-host for this season, Owen Ross. Hey, Owen. Hey, Lisa. This season, we are spotlighting our 2023 Class of Locke Innovative Leader Award recipients. Part of the purpose of the award is to shine a spotlight on these extraordinary individuals and their ministries so that we, and when I say we, I'm going big here. I mean the whole church, Mm. so that the whole church can learn from them. And we believe that hearing their stories and seeing the world and the church through their eyes can spark the spirit within each of us in our own context and expand our imagination for ministry and for the sake of the gospel. May it be so. So speaking of spark, Owen, it occurs to me that each of our innovators has this spark in them that is nothing less than evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in them. It is passion and energy and joy and hopefulness And all of that is so true of our innovator today, Reverend Tyler Sitt. Um, But before we jump into our conversation with Tyler, I wonder, Owen, if you have noticed particular characteristics in innovators and spiritual entrepreneurs that stand out to you as noteworthy. Yeah, you were speaking about, you know, the the, the spirit and and their desire to follow the spirit, which requires... Pivoting requires adapting, and we see that in our innovators over and over again. They're like, we were doing this, but we had to pivot. We were doing this, but then we had to adapt. Well, this opportunity came, and so we had to pivot, and then we had to adapt. And then seeing that the Spirit is continually doing new things among them, and and they just have to have this readiness to adapt and to pivot. We just see that over and over in these innovators. Yeah. Oh, you are so right. We're going to see this with Tyler. And And what it says to me is that they're coming from a place of deep faith, the kind of deep Mm -hmm. faith that that has eyes to see the Holy Spirit at work. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in what the next thing to do is tactically in our in our church work, if you will, and Mm -hmm. and the busyness sort of takes over and we don't have eyes to see. And and I I think you're spot on. Each one of these innovators has sort of a lens of the Holy Spirit, if you will, you know, really seeing where God is at work and yes. pursuing that. Reverend Tyler Sitt is the church planter of New City Church, a community based in Minneapolis, focused on environmental justice and centering marginalized voices. New City got its name from Revelation 21, which describes a heaven where God lives in a new city, where all tribes are welcome, where there is no more violence, and where the whole earth is renewed. Tyler recently wrote a book called Staying Awake, The Gospel for Changemakers. And we'll talk more about that in our conversation. And get this, Barbara Brown Taylor endorsed it. And she said, it makes me want a do-over at being Christian. Wow. Mm. The book arose out of a 
theology practiced by his community in the same neighborhood as the George Floyd uprisings. Tyler is a second-generation Chinese-American, trained community organizer, and a United Methodist pastor. He's been featured in the New York Times, City Lab, Minnesota Public Radio, and more. And you can visit his website, tylersit.com. Owen, what stood out to you from our conversation with Tyler? Tyler just has this, uh, not only is a great communicator, but he speaks about the power of listening, mm-hmm. about listening to the, the community. And I think we would all be served well in the church today. Be very, uh, we would be well served to, to hone in on that gift and skill of listening to our community, listening to the world, as well as, of course, listening to the Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he he talks about it in a couple places, and, and so you all will hear it. It permeates his ministry from walking neighborhoods, doing prayer walks, and and not just walking and praying internally, but also having conversations with people. Part of those prayer walks was that deep listening you're talking about. That stood out to me as well. So let's listen to our conversation with Tyler. Tyler Sit, thank you for being with us. We're so excited. Oh my gosh, what a thrill to be in this interview. I've been looking forward to this podcast interview all week. <laughs> you are awesome. We want to jump right in and have you share with us a little bit about uh, what led you to start New City Church? Yeah. So I was always the kind of person who was gathering people. Uh, you know, hmm. I was the kid in... I believe that. In fifth, <laughs> <laughs> um, like in fifth grade, I um, didn't have anyone to sit with at lunch. And I looked around the lunchroom and I saw the other kids who didn't have anyone to sit with. And I got all of them together to sit at our own lunch table. And from that moment on, I was a church planter. (laughs) Nice, nice. um, I just feel like, you know, as an Asian American, as a queer person, like marginalized people have always had to gather subversive groups of people for the sake of survival. And I just think that kind of primed me to be able to think of how we could not just gather any group, but gather specifically a community around faith to be able to to love God and to grow in community. So every stage of my life, there was some kind of equivalent of church planting, whether that was starting a campus ministry or a Bible study in Ecuador or uh, just uh, something, uh, something for each season. Tyler, I've been looking forward to this this podcast. When I saw you on the list of the of the of the guest this season, I, I was just looking forward to this. Looking forward to reconnecting with you. Uh, and you've been named a, an innovative leader. You're continually innovating, but I, what I'm interested in both. What was what would you kind of point to? What has been innovative about New City Church, and 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 then at some point about your new venture of going multi-site, what's innovative about that. And so maybe we could start with just your approach to New City Church, you know, kind of from the beginning and how that's developed. Yeah, I am continually so flabbergasted that people (laughs) keep recognizing me as an innovative leader because 
Starting with New City Church, the goal wasn't innovation. The goal was solidarity. And the solidarity naturally flowed into innovation. So like when I started New City Church, I um, did a prayer walk through every neighborhood in Minneapolis and just kind of saw kind of where my heart felt called and, and where God was leading. And then I started talking to folks in the neighborhood and you know, I come from a climate change activist background. And so I was like, we're going to start a climate change church. I don't know what that means, but get ready. And <laughs> uh, and then as I was listening to people in the neighborhood, they're like, climate change is important to me, but also like my husband just got deported. So like mm. you do that, but I kind of have to take care of my three kids and get another job and do that kind of thing. Yeah. It was like, well, dang, like... I really am passionate about climate change, but if I'm communicating this in a way that doesn't have like a felt, visceral, energetic response from the people in my neighborhood, then what am I really even doing? Mm-hmm. And so um, I started, I kind of like pivoted and called it an eco-church because I thought eco-church sounded kind of sexy. Like <laughs> who's ever been to an eco-church? I don't know, let's go. And uh, I did a focus group with some of my black friends and they were like, um, Eco church sounds bougie. It sounds expensive. <laughs> wow. It sounds like a eco toilet bowl cleaner that like cleans worse but costs more. That's mm. what your church sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Let's just uh, turn the <laughs> ship around. And so, uh, you know, Big I just, miss. <laughs> like, okay, not good. But also, like, thank God for their candor and honesty because I was about to roll out a whole branded church for around this thing. And they were like, nah, this ain't it. So I just kept uh, talking to people and I don't know, like I have always cared so much about the planet that eventually um, we got this community together that was uh, the big theme that that they were bringing up at the time was around gentrification and how like their neighborhood, um, like, Use, like historically, it's been a, a very oppressed neighborhood ecologically, like a highway cut through this historic neighborhood of color. There's factories that are polluting the air and the community organized to make it greener, but they were so good at it that as the neighborhood became greener, the cost of living also went up and the same families that built the neighborhood are getting kicked out of the neighborhood. So like, as I was listening to the community, it was like, well, you know, like all of this environmental commitment, all of this conversation about climate change is really the same conversation as gentrification, but it's just a different scale. Because mm. gentrification and climate change are asking the questions of who gets to live where and whose quality of life matters and uh, who has power in the city and how do they influence that. So we did a, a Bible study on Revelation 21 uh, about mm. new city, uh, this image of the new city and, you know, in our scripture, we read how God welcomes all tribes of people into it and where there's no more violence, every tear will be wiped and, uh, and the whole earth is renewed. Like there's an ecological component to it. So, uh, you know, uh, pivot, pivot, pivot later, we were a new mm. city church. <laughs> and, and I felt like that just kind of set the tone for the entire ministry where like the innovation is trying to be born out of 
the innate Holy Spirit momentum that is already present among people and in the neighborhood. And the church is just kind of there to, to hurry it along and to keep people on board. Yeah. And, 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 and so now you, you know, you're going multi-site. Yeah. And so, I mean, yet another pivot, you know, it wasn't set out. I mean, I, you right. know, I remember back when we were doing coaching, multi-site mm-hmm. wasn't on the, uh, on the agenda, but now it is. <laughs> so can you share more about that? Yeah, for full disclosure, Owen Ross was my church planting coach for a very <laughs> important season. And I just, nice. I'm so grateful for that. The, the vision for multi-siting, I, w- I knew from the get-go that New City Church wasn't going to be the like, we create kind of a franchised experience of like one worship kind of thing that you can kind of cut and copy around to any church kind of regardless of what neighborhood it was in. I always knew that that was the case, but it wasn't until my district superintendent approached me actually, which is like my supervisor in United Methodism for any listeners who are not Methodist. He was like, you know, there's this opportunity. This community is totally values aligned. They have uh, uh, deep roots in the neighborhood. They care about uh, justice and and they want to move in this direction. Uh, They've been LGBTQ affirming for a long time. Like, uh, what do you think about this? And I did the same prayer walk as I did when I planted New City Church. Mm-hmm. And I talked, I had the same types of conversations where I just did some listening for some energy. And uh, there was just a Holy Spirit nudge that said, like, this is worth this is worth giving a shot at. So initially the idea was that I would sunset Northeast United Methodist and then relaunch New City Northeast Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know, I just kept listening to people. And I think uh, the spirit had a different organizational structure in mind. So mm-hmm. uh, as of, you know, spring 2023, uh, uh, they remain separate churches that are two branches grafted to the same tree. And so uh, we share a mission and vision and certain services, but not other things. And all of that is just from listening and uh, and extensive whiteboarding, you know, like just like <laughs> and just miles of post-it notes used <laughs> to brainstorm and put together themes and clusters, and the number of pages I've journaled of like, well, what if, what about this, God? What about this? And mm. yeah, all all of that kind of resulted to where we are now. Nice. Oh, there's so many threads I want to pull on with all that you've just said. Um, so I'll start with one, and then maybe we'll get to to some of the others. But um, but one is um, I'm hearing you say like if what we're doing doesn't resonate with the felt visceral experience of the people in our neighborhoods. I mean, just the people who are right in front of us. Then what are we doing? And I just think, yes, that's Jesus, right? That's <laughs> okay. Jesus, if it, right? And so, uh, I, I, that I'm holding on to that. And mm. I think the way that you are paying attention in this word that you've used over and over, you're listening, mm-hmm. you're walking, you're praying, you're having conversations, and you're listening to those felt visceral experiences and um, the giftedness of your neighbors and the and the deep pains and and all of those things and and so um, one of the things I've heard you talk about uh, 
quite a bit is this, that your congregation, not your congregation, mm-hmm. that New City Church <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, is um, centers mm-hmm. voices, marginalized voices that might not otherwise be heard, yes. right? And so what does that look like for you in, in practice? Oh my gosh. So yeah, centering marginalized voices is a is a really key phrase in my ministry. Uh, in the community, this centering marginalized voices is something we try to say a lot. And so much that, you know, for like outward communications, we'll, I'll name that New City is a multiracial church or a multiracial ministry, but we don't really language that internally. Uh, we, we say more like New City is a church that centers marginalized voices because the emphasis is not on the plurality of people groups there. The emphasis is on what difference are we making for the people who are most stepped on by society? Mm. Um, and so, uh, uh, and, and that's not any shade to any multiracial churches out there. It's just how like the tenor of our ministry really came to the forefront. Uh, the idea with Centering Marginalized Voices is we want the people who are the most oppressed by society, the most neglected by society, to be able to start, stop, and steer the conversation. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, allowing the first comment of a, of, a, of a meeting to be made by uh, folks who are Black, Indigenous, queer, disabled, undocumented, etc. And, uh, and having the last comment of that conversation be made from those same mm. groups. And also just trying to, again and again, reiterate that um, if this is going in the wrong direction, then we're entrusting the marginalized folks in our community to steer the conversation uh, mm-hmm. away from what is maybe most important to the dominant culture and steering it toward what might be most important to people who are oppressed by the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we, we try to infuse that to everything that we do. Um, A a little example is after I preach on Sunday mornings, we have something called sacred witnessing where we um, invite community members to come to the mic and say kind of like what resonated with you. There's usually a focus question of some sort. And And we say explicitly, like all people in this room are welcome to respond to this. We especially want to encourage BIPOC, queer, disabled, and undocumented folks to uh, cut to the front of the line to be able to Mm -hmm. share. And I think that is just kind of metaphorically what we're trying to do in in everything uh, that we do. And gosh, I I don't want to be romantic about it. Like it sure is messy. And and (laughs) it's sure like there's there's conflict that that comes from that because we're Mm -hmm. operating in a way that people aren't used to. But um, ultimately it... It created a, um, an ethos, an organizational culture where people knew that something different was happening here than they would find anywhere else mm-hmm. in the rest of the week. And I think that's really what drove New City Church's growth. So, so there's you know this stepping into or being open and comfortable uh, with conflict within the the community. But then there's also the stepping into the conflict of the greater society. You know, there are a lot of movements where we can see that the social movements that the church was at the center or at the forefront of those movements. But, you know, now with the great social movements that we see going on in society, you know, I think a lot of times the church is struggling. If we're not in charge of it, then Mm -hmm. then what are we supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. And with the 
you know, wow. in your yeah. community, we had the, you know, global news and the, and the murder of George Floyd. Can yes. you share a little bit about how New City Church responded to that and, and what you learned about that season that could be lessons for other churches on, mm-hmm. on how we are supposed to be faithful in social movements when we're no longer in charge mm. of them? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> I really love that observation, Owen. Uh, like, there's kind of this sense of like, well, we, if we can't be completely controlling and dominant of it, then how do we know that it's a, a churchy, Jesusy thing? Like, if we can't paste our name and cross over every surface of every visible thing, then how do we know yeah. that it's Christian? Yeah. And uh, I think that when when we catch ourselves naming that, we we have to repent from mm-hmm. the sin of Christendom, like which is really just uh, all of the evil and oppression and supremacy in the world appropriating Christian images and tropes. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like like Christianity is following the gospel of liberation. Christendom is the appropriation of Jesus's story for the sake of trying to control everything. And uh, whenever we see a social movement and feel like we can't show up because it's not Jesus-y enough, I think we really have to check some of our, our, our internal stuff. Um, there were folks, uh, li- like you mentioned, Owen, um, the racist murder of George Floyd happened walking distance from where New City Church is. And uh, there were folks from all over Minnesota and then later the country who these were like uh, predominantly white churches coming in to do things like on-the-site baptisms and uh, these like really intense revivals. And they did it with zero communication to the people who were organizing and living on the ground. And the message just felt very clear that like uh, their quote-unquote, reclaiming this space for Jesus was actually reclaiming a sense of um, control in, in, a, in a time when things were changing. And, and that was really damaging to the community. It was really hurtful for these like white suburban churches who have never stepped on Chicago and 38th to all of a sudden be setting up, sometimes in the parking lot of the historically Black church that is at George Floyd Square, to run their own little thing without mm. any permission from anyone. Mm. Um, like that's that that anxious colonizing reflex was just so visceral. And it truly, like so many churches asked me at the time, like, how can I help? How can I help? And some of it was like, train all of the folks who are planning on doing this to talk to organizers on the ground first. Mm. Mm. So I, I guess that would be my first generalizable lesson. The second thing I would name is New City Church didn't, you know, there there was no like three-year plan where we expected an international racial reckoning to start at our front door. <laughs> you know, like there was no like way that we really could have anticipated this. Um, we didn't we didn't expect it, we didn't see it coming. And I think I would just encourage any church leaders who are listening to this podcast to consider like well, what happens if the next international racial awakening happens in your front door? Like, mm-hmm. what, what is your church going to do? Because if you're thinking, it could never happen here, like, that's what all of us were saying, like, a year before it happened, <laughs> and then it did. So I think there's, there's a certain amount of, like, 
conversation, critical conversations that can be had in church to really be saying like, what happens if our church is going to be part of the history that God is writing for our country? And are, and are we ready to respond to mm-hmm. that? Um, and then just practically, uh, the, the last thing I'll say is uh, having communication channels where church people can contact each other and not just the staff contacting church people was critical for an internal infrastructure for organizing. So we um, uh, leveraged all of the you know, technological groups and chats and all the things that we could because there was so much energy in the system that no staff person could direct all of it. Like we needed to entrust the people of our community to, or- to self-organize amongst themselves. And, uh, and we laid out values and guidelines and moderation, but we just kind of let people go and they went. So really creating that internal communication infrastructure was something I was really grateful for. Mm-hmm. That sense of decentering is th- that is a theme through all the learnings you just named for me. That's mm-hmm. what stands out, right? It's this decentering of the pastor in the congregations where the congregation mm-hmm. is relating to mm-hmm. each other. It's the decentering of whiteness, of power, mm-hmm. of control. Mm-hmm. So that those who are in the neighborhood, in the movement, are heard and valued, and and even empowered is a is a too controlling word, right? Mm-hmm. As if we're offering power to right, somebody right. who already has it, right? right. But they're but unleashed. This, <laughs> they're, they're, right? Yeah, they yes. can do their thing. Yes, yeah. yes. And so, so this this notion of decentering. Can you say a word about that? Because I I suspect. That there's something about decentering that's very much connected to innovation. I mean, you're saying I don't know why folks are keep saying in, innovative, oh. but really, <laughs> there's something very fundamental about the way that yeah. you are in the world that feels innovative to oh. a church that has kind of done things a certain way for a long time, and mm-hmm. you ask new questions and you bring a new lens. And so, mm-hmm. anyway, will you just say a word about this? Mm, notion mm, of decentering, mm. if that resonates with you. It really does. Um, I think, um, first off, I want to clarify that um, when we say centering marginalized voices, that is a statement of where the center of gravity of a community is, not a statement about who is excluded from this community. So every once in a while, there's always white folks who come up to me, straight white folks who are like, well, this isn't a place for me uh, because, or like I'm excluded from this place. And I always feel like, well, that's not really our intention, whether or not that is what you're hearing. Like our intention is we're letting marginalized voices start, stop and steer the conversation. And actually it's part of the discipleship of people of dominant identities to practice creating that space so it's not just like we only care about the discipleship of marginalized people and therefore we center them. It's like we care about creating the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God looks like marginalized voices being centered and part of the faith formation of people who have power is to, is to hold that and to um, abide by that. And, uh, and, and yeah, so I, I think whenever we say decentering, people always kind of have a fragility response or kind mm-hmm. of a collapse mm-hmm. response of like, mm-hmm. but what about me? And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's not 
that's not really the vision that I'm trying to cast here. But I do think that, I don't know, I've just done enough pastoral care with enough couples that I know that the people who are the least secure, the people who are the most uh, fragile, the least trusting, and, and have the most work, internal work to do, are the ones who feel the need to gobble up all the space and to control the most things. And the healthiest couples that I know are when two people have enough grounding confidence and trust in themselves that they can yield to their partner to be able to truly create a mutual relationship. And I think that one of the muscles that we have to develop in mm. this art of decentering is developing the grounding confidence and uh, trust that when we are yielding or, or creating space for other people that we won't be destroyed or somehow less a child of God because of it. Oh, I, I don't want us to end this without a chance to talk about uh, staying awake. The, the, your book, I want to encourage others to go check it out. It's available on uh, wherever Ooh. you get your books. Uh, <laughs> but can sure. you share with a little bit about the, the, the book, why the title, why so many illustrations? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are, there's, there's literal drawings and illustrations in the book for, for folks who want to check it out. Yeah. So, um, the idea with that, with staying awake, and this was in collaboration with the forum for theological exploration, as well as Charles press, like my commitment was, um, I need a book that is immediately useful to the people I'm in ministry with. Mm. So initially we had pitched a lot of ideas of like, you know, maybe you could write to other pastors who are trying other things, or maybe you could try talking about Christianity in kind of big, broad strokes. And I just am so committed <laughs> or so held accountable by my community that I knew that I couldn't put all the work into writing a book with if it didn't mean anything to the people on the street. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write a primer to Christianity that centers marginalized voices. Uh, uh, an introduction to the practices of being Christian as told by the experiences of the Black, Indigenous, and people of color and queer people at New City Church. And I think that like that staying awake, uh, which by the way, what ended up being useful to not just my community, praise the Lord, <laughs> uh, uh, kind of spiraled into uh, another collaborative project with Rachel Gilmore, Matt Temple, Candace Lewis, uh, starting a a, a group, a company called Intersect, which does intersectional church planter training. And all of that came from the experience of writing Staying Awake because mm. the the feedback that I got was like, man, I want to I want to really get into this. I want to start something that doesn't look like what I grew up with. Mm. And Staying Awake is the first step, but where do I go from here? And it kind of all just branched out into Intersect. Wow. Okay, say more about Intersect. Oh, I just love it, Lisa. It's just my favorite thing. <laughs> because like, you know, for as many queer folks are in are in these churches, BIPOC folks who are in these churches who are looking at this saying like, there has to be a better way to do this. There has to be another way. There's, there's so few church planting resources that really meet people where they are in that regard. Uh, a lot of, and as both of you know, a lot of the church planting resources and conferences, literature, and podcasts out there 
really center whiteness, really assume that there's a certain level of disposable income available to people, assume that there's stay-at-home wives, usually, who are like able to just volunteer 70 hours a week to run their Sunday school program. Like All of these things built off of these uh, sexist, uh, white supremacist assumptions, honestly. So uh, Intersect is trying to, f- uh, to fill that gap and, and to support folks in becoming planters for a community that reflects a commitment to centering marginalized voices. So yeah, we're, we're partnering with several different conferences in the United Methodist Church, and we're hoping to keep the conversation going all around the world. But I don't want to miss the moment for folks to connect with you on Intersect. How can they get in touch with you about that? Oh, sure. Um, so Intersect is um, intersectnetwork.co, so not .com, but .co. Um, or you can just reach out to me through my website, tylersit.com. And I just want to affirm, like, I think we are in kind of this like Pentecostal moment where mm-hmm. the iron is hot and we can like cast a vision for what the gospel and ministry and church life could look like for the next century uh, based off of what happens in the next 10 years. So if folks are kind of like sitting on the sidelines waiting to decide if they're going to step into this, like now is the time. Now, I don't want to put a damper on the the spirit, but I want to talk money for a second. (laughs) Because there's a lot of people who really want to do something, but they're like, how do I, how do I fund this? How do I do this? And, and, you know, and so now I'm also in the, in the seat of the funder in the North Texas conference. And I'm thinking about, oh, so how do we make these, these things sustainable? So can you share a little bit about how you've thought about money and funding New City Church and, and and other initiatives when you're with focusing on marginalized populations that don't always have a lot of discretionary income. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just want to name that there's this kind of like, I don't know, church planter on, or a starter or entrepreneur propaganda that's like, if you just are, if you have the right idea, then it'll just fund itself and it'll last in perpetuity forever, and you'll never have to worry about money in the world. Yeah. And that is like so. <laughs> I like. For, I just think that the whole narrative comes from such a profound place of privilege. Like, mm. like if folks have never had to really wonder where their grocery money is going to come from, like they don't get to say if the right vision is going to be adequately funded, right? So mm. I, I think I I don't want to be romantic at all. Like there. Uh, Every planter has to ask serious questions of how the finance model is going to work. I, what I tell my team is like the numbers have to number. So mm. it's like no mm. matter how many dreams we have, like we are living in a society where people's basic needs aren't guaranteed by our society, but they have to be paid for. And as long as that is the case, we will need to have an income because all of the things that we need to basically function are are not guaranteed by our society. So um, the numbers have to number. So I have just always believed in being really upfront with folks about that from the get-go and uh, and not grasping too hard on the form of the ministry so that we can be transparent about the finance. And so from the get-go saying like, hey, if we want this to be a a weekly worshiping church that has 
a pastor and, you know, has uh, these kind of things, like, uh, this is how many families are going to need to be giving this much to be able to make that work. And if that's not where the community is discerning, if that's not what you feel like God is leading us to, let's just name that from the beginning and then just do the the other model or the thing. You know, like, I think mm-hmm. there's so much stigma against ministries that don't become proper churches. And I, mm-hmm. I really try to approach my community saying like, hey, if this is going to be a group that meets in the community room in a cafe, fabulous. If this is going to be like a thing that we are intentionally only going to do for one year, great. But if you do want a weekly worship service that's going to run in perpetuity, like this is what that's going to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and kind of setting setting a bar for that. And then casting a vision even to people who are outside of the community who are interested in this project succeeding. Yeah, that's helpful. You've also spent seasons of and being bivocational. Oh, is that season done yet? I I think I think that's still the season. I think that's still, no. I, I I mean, from the get go, I've um, always been a halftime pastor of uh, New City Church, and even with this kind of new branching model, I'm a halftime pastor at New City Church and a halftime at Northeast. But New City has never known full time pastor from its it, its get go, and I think that was a key part of our finance model for sure. Mm. That's. All of that is so wise and helpful because we have certain models in our mind and, and we've got to hold lightly to them. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to say completely let go of them, but just yeah. hold lightly and and open our minds to other possibilities. And I love the conversation about transparency in that. And one of the things that we have observed with innovation and innovators in particular is that when you are doing ministry in ways that are different from the ways we've always done ministry, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the system does what all living systems do when when a new thing comes in, it begins to reject it, right? It treats it like a virus and, and starts to reject it. And and yet you have found ways actually where your voice has been heard and people have honored your ministry. And okay, but I just mm-hmm. want to honor that and recognize that when you're an innovator, sometimes you get pushback from the system like you don't belong. On the other hand, you're working with people who might look at you and say, you're a what? A pastor? <laughs> a what? Like, And what does that have to do with me? So you even like in the midst of community can get resistance. So resistance from the system, the organized religion system and the and the, from the community. Can you uh, can you say a word about that and what that's been like for you and and why are you still in it? Why why yeah. are you doing this thing? Yeah yeah yeah. Sorry, I'm laughing um, because like I like a couple of weeks ago like cut to me in this room, it, like music is pounding and I'm yelling over the music to a drag queen, I'm a pastor. And they're like, <laughs> what? And I'm like, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I work at a church, I'm a pastor. And they're like, what in the world? So yeah, I've, I've had that conversation. I've had that conversation a couple of times. Um, yeah, I guess I would, I would name... I'm I'm really grateful for the support that the Minnesota Annual Conference uh, mm. gave in 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 giving me the space to be able to plant. Uh, one of the uh, kind of understandings that we that we wrote down before I even got 
to Minnesota from, I went to seminary at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. One of the things that we even got before I touched uh, touched down at, at Minnesota was an agreement that said that Tyler would be assigned to church plant and that he would, uh, the first five years of his um, project wouldn't be, uh, would be dedicated only to church planting as long as he met kind of some of the accountability and metrics that um, were laid out. So I, I think just from the get-go, having the oversight from my superiors to say like, we're, we're going to create space for you to really be able to experiment, I think um, was huge, huge, huge. I also did a church planting residency that they paid for part of that residency. I did, I did that at Urban Village Church in Chicago, and that was huge. So yeah, I think I, I would just encourage any folks who have money or <laughs> or who are interested in, in innovation to create a separate sandbox for innovation mm, where nice. different rules apply. So... Uh, uh, still having you know a dashboard of some type of accountability metrics, but having the accountability metrics defined by the planter and the community. So not just nickels and noses, but also mm-hmm. naming like how can we measure? How do we know that this is working? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then providing coverage for that. Um, the other uh, framework that I think in in terms of sandbox uh, creation that's really helpful is thinking of limited term experiments. So not just mm-hmm. saying, we're going to fund this until it dies, but saying like, we're going to fund this in, for a year and then just see what we're learning from that one year. Or we're mm-hmm. going to, you know, we're going to fund this in, in, a, in a way where we're bookending the experiment so no one feels surprised when that end comes and then we're mm-hmm. going to be reporting our learnings and metrics from that. That, that's, that helps to ease some of the risk uh, for, mm-hmm. for that. And I definitely had to um, propose things in that in that way to the conference as well. As far as the community goes, I don't know. Like Minnesota is uh, way predominantly white, and Minneapolis is still a predominantly white city, and so they just don't know what to do with a gay Asian pastor. Like, there's just no like category in their brain that's like, oh yeah, there's just another one of those run of the mill <laughs> gay Asian pastors. So I think I just. Um, have had to have a lot of conversations where um, it's not like I am a, a pastor despite the fact that I'm a person of color or that I'm gay, but I'm a pastor because I'm a person of color and mm-hmm. because I'm gay. Like, like <laughs> queer people have always had to ask ourselves really deep questions of belonging and purpose and meaning using the emotional skills of an 11-year-old going through puberty. And that just kind of like means that the question of of greater purposes has always been there. Like I was reading the Bible cover to cover in fifth grade on my own Mm. initiative. So Mm. like this drive towards spirituality is deeply related towards, uh, with my queerness. And and I think the... uh, the gospel, the relief and inspiration that I find in Jesus, all of that is is buttressed by my understanding of what it means to be uh, an, uh, a person of an erased identity in America. And, and I just can't really imagine articulating the gospel without naming that because it's so mm-hmm. like experientially true for me. Beautiful. I, I hear in that how Jesus has claimed you 
mm-hmm. and you live that. Yeah. And, and just as much as it's like the sky is blue, the earth is amazing. God's real and doing stuff. Like these are just like, these have always been like so obviously palpably true to me. And the more I talk to um, Mm. other queer folks, the more I realize like actually a lot of people have had similar experiences as I did, like Mm. uh, theophany kind of experiences. But in their case, it wasn't validated by the church. And in my Mm. case, it was. And Mm. that's, that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's powerful right there. I mean, you're not throwing out the institution just because there's all these issues with the institution of the church. Mm-hmm. You're saying, actually, there are some really important ways in which the institution has given you space to live out yeah. your calling and the gospel. And um, I, that's fabulous. Truly. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree, um, believe that, that, um, there is no mechanism of social change or personal transformation that doesn't require some type of organizing of a lot of people together. Mm-hmm. So I know it's not super popular to say, but like I think that organized religion is uh, a requirement for social change mm. today. It's it's <laughs> like a it's a it's a precondition that we must have in order for us to experience personal transformation and social wow. transformation. Wow, that that in and of itself is such a powerful word right there. Yes. Indeed. Uh, I'm not going to read the comment section on this podcast. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. So we are asking all of our guests this final question. Yes. What is a breath of fresh air in the church today that is nothing less than the gift of the Spirit? <gasps> Oh my gosh. So uh, New City Church is in the process of being transferred a building. So we've rented from United Methodist Church for a long time, and that United Methodist Church is transferring it to us. And we are launching a nonprofit called the Grapevine Collective. And the job of the Grapevine Collective is not only to run the building, because we know that Tyler Sid is not going to be running that building, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but also to do like capacity building and development for all of the amazing healing justice nonprofits that rent space from the building. So uh, we have like food security groups, we have uh, body workers and massage folks who uh, focus on healing and body trauma in in Black and Indigenous people. We have a safe use, um, clean needle, like harm reduction group that meets in the building. But right now, all of them are kind of operating independently. And so we're launching this nonprofit to not only uh, run the building, but for all of those groups to be able to inform and support and collaborate with each other in these just beautiful, delicious, luscious kind of ways. And I was talking to um, a foundation representative here, uh, here in Minneapolis, and they were like, this sounds amazing, we want you to come back with a proposal thinking even bigger of what hmm. this could look like. We want you wow. to come back with a proposal of like, but how is this going to change the story of how church buildings relate to their community and these nonprofits? Hmm. Like, send us that. And so we're like, okay, <laughs> challenge received. And uh-huh. so, uh, we're, That's so good. Uh, we're really excited to be dreaming even bigger than that. Fabulous. 
Tyler Sit, you are amazing. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for your prophetic voice and your witness and your deep, deep faith, your gift. Oh my gosh. Appreciate you, Tyler. Both of you are a delight and a pleasure. And I know that you all listening to the podcast can't see it, but like the supportive pastoral, like active listening faces of <laughs> this group of people <laughs> is like amazing. Like so th- I'm just going to be walking on air for the rest of the day. So thank you all so much and blessings. Oh. Well, it, it's, it's, this face is enthralled. That's what this face is. I'm just enthralled. I'm not sure it's being pastoral. Mm. It's not taking effort to make this engaged face. I can tell you that, Tyler. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share our episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson-White. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.